Hi, everybody. Welcome to Walton Biz Talk, where we have casual conversations about professional things. We're a student-run podcast created by the Business Communication Lab in the Sam M. Walton College of Business. I'm Ryan Decker. And I'm Jesse Schneeblen. And this season, we're exploring the topic of health. We're going to explore a lot of different interdisciplinary approaches to the subject of health and really see what it is and why it's an important topic to discuss. Today, we're here with Mark Zweig, who is an entrepreneur and executive in residence at the Walton College. He's a founder of two separate Inc. 500 out of 5,000 businesses, one which is a management consulting and publishing firm, and the other is a design and construction firm. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mark. Hey, it's great to be here with you, Ryan. So obviously, COVID-19 has caused many changes so far in 2020, and one thing is for sure that we'll never be exactly the same as we were before the pandemic. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the future of work and life in general. I know you've written a few pieces for Walton Insights um, as far as innovative opportunities to come out of this um, and just advice or suggestions for entrepreneurs. So starting with work uh, for everyone, not just entrepreneurs, but what do you predict the future of work will look like? Gosh, I think it varies greatly depending on the industry. Yeah. I'm not sure this one stock answer is going to be um, apply to all by any means. And, and so I think some industries are going to be doing very well and others will not be doing so well. It's really difficult to say, you know, what's the nature of work? I mean, I come out of white collar industries by and large. And so, you know, on that side of the of the fence, I think you're going to see a lot more people working from home because they figured out they can do it. They've proved it to themselves and proved it to their employers that they can be productive, not being in an office all the time. Um, I do think that'll have some disadvantages. Um, you lose a lot in the sort of communications and relationships of people. Sure, it's all yeah. But, we uh, talk, sorry. Yeah, we talked about digital communication actually on our last episode about, you know, the pros and cons mm-hmm. there as far as what you lose, what you gain. And I think it's interesting how, you know, companies have shifted to this work from home uh, purely out of necessity, really. Um, So I'm interested as far as, you know, office buildings for these white collar um, jobs per se. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, you know, I own office space here. So my first thought is, holy cow, nobody's going to want office space. Uh, (laughs) That was my first thought. Now I'm starting to rethink that, um, and and you know maybe what we'll have is just less people working in the office, but more space per person, you know, with a lot less density in the space. Interesting. So kind of uh, keeping that social distancing even after you know restrictions are lifted, just more personal space in general. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a lot of pressure already building on the whole open office environment you know i don't been some articles in in harvard business review and and other places on you know research done that shows people actually communicate less when they all work together interesting uh, in cubicles versus offices and and you know so the benefits weren't really there in terms of improving communications it did improve their you know cost per square foot when you jam people together tightly like that, it sure. goes down. But uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, with the trends, recognition, let's say that 
open office environments really aren't the best for communications and productivity. Uh, coupled with, you know, just the general paranoia everybody's going to have. And this could last, you know, who knows how long it'll last. They, they say 12 to 18 months before they have a vaccine. That's at the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. And they don't know whether people can be reinfected once they've had it. Right. So, you know, information says that they can be. So I think if you, if you ponder all that, um, and, you, you know, I think the other thing is companies are going to see in some businesses that their productivity goes down with everybody working at home because, let's face it, there are a lot of temptations to do other things. Right. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. I'm, I'm certainly used to that. I've been, I've been working out of my house probably for a year and a half now. And um, since I sold my ownership interest at Swag Group and... Uh, it's it's uh and we closed our uh, got rid of our other office moved mark swag inc back into our house as well so i know there's a lot of other stuff you can do i mean you can sit on the porch you can listen to music you can read you can play with your dog you can wash your cars and get distracted by the latest binge watching you're doing on netflix (laughs) all that all those things. But anyway, I, so I think, I, you know, it's also great. You can work any time of the day or night, mm-hmm. which, you know, has some, some benefits too. But I do think overall, probably productivity, at least in the industry that I'm most familiar with, architecture and engineering, my guess is it's probably 20% reduced by everybody working at home. It's just a number I'm taking out of my head, but. Sure. Do you think that the increase of being able to work, you know, longer than just the typical eight to five or kind of shifting what's the normal for each person at home, do you think that could offset the productivity at all? Or do you think people are generally sticking to the eight to five usually? Oh, I think it could offset it, but I also think a lot of us never respected eight to five anyway. True. (laughs) Really, I mean, I work with a lot of CEOs and, and partners in, in businesses and, and I've got a lot of friends that own all kinds of businesses and who are professionals, lawyers, you know, whatever. And, and nobody, you know, who, who's few people who are very successful work eight to five. Let me just say that. I mean, right. we're communicating all hours of the day or night. I was always known as the guy, you know, you could email me at 2 a.m. and I'd respond at 2.05. <laughs> I'm changing though. Yeah. At, at 62, I'm I'm kind of tired of that, that, uh, you know, but it, because we, we can work 24 hours a day anyway, most of us already. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know that that's new. Um, but anyway, I do think things are going to change and, and, uh, it'll be, it, it's very difficult to predict exactly what those changes will be. Yeah. So we, as we're, as we're shifting, um, obviously changing quite a bit. I know you wrote an article for Walton Insights about opportunities for innovation. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what we could adapt and innovate from this? Well, I think you have to really go back to what people's needs are. It's the same thing. I just wrote an article with sort of my my parting comments for the, the graduates this semester. And um, you know, what I told them was, you got to figure out what industry that you really want to be in, but you got to be smart about it. 
look around and say what things are likely to be good and what things are likely not to be good. You know, you've got a whole lot of forces at work here besides the virus effect, which could make, you know, restaurants as we know them basically unviable. Um, you know, they're barely hanging on right now with all their carryout and all, but everybody I know in that business, their, their revenues are down 70, 80% for most of them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can't go on like that. What if you had to reopen, but you needed super low density inside and your 60 person restaurant now seated 15 people. You think you can make it on, you know, half the revenue you'd normally have or a third of the revenue. I mean, so it, it's, you got to look at the, at the industries and say, which industries are likely to be good and which ones are likely not to be so great. I think that's sort of the first place to start. Um, and then, you know, whatever the business is, the, the whoever owns it or is managing it, it's got to really figure out what people's needs are. And, and, you know, not just, uh, you know, what they have been, but what they are now. People are spending a lot of time at home. People are doing more exercise at home. Bicycles, bicycle sales are way up. Home gym equipment sales are up. Um, you know, uh, so innovation is, is trying to figure out how to give people the stuff that they want and need in new ways and in, in being able to deliver that. But it takes, you know, really understanding your clients and customers. And, and so, but, but to go back to where, where I was going originally, I think, it, you know, pick the right industry, one that's likely to do well. You know, I don't think we're going to have a recession. I think we're headed for a depression. So if you consider, you know, what are things like in a depression? Well, basic needs have to be met. Everybody's got to eat. We need power. We need housing. We need, you know, certain things to, to live. I don't think it's going to be a great time to be in the luxury goods business. You know, honestly, I, I, you're going to see like less car brands. You're going to see less restaurants. They'll be different, whatever the form is that they take. Um, you know, who knows how we're going to be able to deal with things like basic medical care. You know, a lot of telemedicine will become the norm. So I think you've just got to look at the industries and see what the needs of their clients or customers are and figure out new ways to do it that are consistent with the environment that we're operating in. Yeah, so I know you talked a little bit about advice for uh, graduates or whatever coming out of college. Mm -hmm. uh, since a lot of our listeners are students, can you uh, summarize that just a little bit in terms of, you know, obviously they should look at the industry they're going into, um, but are there any other things that they could, they should consider going into it too? Oh man, I got so much to say about that one. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, really what I, I think if you, it, well, it starts out with with the job search. I think that's probably the biggest concern that people have right now mm -hmm. is, you know, what what are they going to do? Um, the job market has changed radically just in the last month or two. Sure. Uh, so, you know, my, my sort of first words of advice to people are, uh, sorry, um, you know, that the semester had to end like this. 
Um, I know it's kind of a letdown for a lot of people who are graduating. They wanted to walk. You know, you have this sort of image of it is a milestone. You sure. know, no question about it. It's a it's it's a it's a real milestone, and they sort of feel like they got gypped out of that experience. Um, you know, this last semester, and I I tell people, look, if you think this is the best time of your life, you're wrong. I mean, the, <laughs> the best the best is yet to come. And this is just a blip on the on the screen. So, you know, it is disappointing, but you got to get over it. But you got to get a job. And I think it's going to take people a lot more effort maybe than they've had to expend in the past, you know, where we have 130, 140 employers at our job fairs and all the best students get multiple offers and they're already employed months before they ever get out of school. Now the reality, maybe you got to send out two or 300 resumes or applications. And so what I tell people is remember what you were taught about statistics and probability theory. You know, let the odds work in your favor. Generate lots and lots of possibilities. Don't stop. As soon as you get one where there's some interest and wait to see how that turns out, that's the worst approach you can take, especially in what's likely to be a really tight job market for a while. But, you know, if you slog away and you pick the right industries, ones that will do well, that common sense would tell you will do well, and you are relentless in your efforts to generate possibilities, I, I feel that most people will prevail and, and get the job. So I think that's sort of the first thing that's really critical. Of course, I always tell people, I mean, Aside from the industries that are going to do well, pick something you love. I, I was lucky. I got into the architecture and engineering industry, and um, it was always an interest of mine. I thought I wanted to be an architect when I was a little kid, and then I got seduced away by the world of business when I started working <laughs> in shops at uh, 12 or 13. And I just got to where I made so much money. It was ridiculous. I, I, I ended up um, getting my business degree and then my MBA. And, but when I got out of grad school, I went to work for a consulting firm that served construction, real estate development, and architecture and engineering. And, you know, it's an industry I've worked in for 40 years. I never regretted it. I never got tired of it. The work is interesting that the people do to me. And I love the people. They're honest and ethical and creative and and good people, smart people. So pick the industry that you want to get in. Even if it's not the best job, get into that industry. And, and you know, you don't want to have to change industries if you can avoid it. Because it's very costly in your career. You're never going to get paid. You know, if you had 10 years of experience working in one industry and then you want to go, let's say you're an accountant and you want to go to work in another completely unrelated industry, you're probably not going to get paid for all 10 years of those of that experience. You'll have to step back. Right. And so it's costly. So get the right industry, you know, work, generate lots of opportunities in terms of who, you know, so you've got many, many possibilities for getting a job. <coughs> Excuse me. I think the other message right now is just keep your overhead low. Mm-hmm. Because you want to have options and the mistake a lot of people make, I made it myself. You know, I got out of school. I was tired of being poor. 
quickly got married, bought a house that was far more expensive than we could afford. We couldn't even furnish it. You know, we ate on a card table. I mean, you know, our yard was, we had no shrubs, no lawn at all. I had a friend of mine that got a sod cutter and cut all of his weeds out of his yard to replace it with new sod. He gave me his weeds and that was our yard. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we couldn't do anything. It was just, a, I never want to live like that again and, and never did from that point on. Um, you know, we, we eventually sold that house, moved to Memphis from St. Louis and, and rented an apartment and then started buying cheaper houses. And never live like that again. But my point is, you know, a lot of people, they get their expensive vehicles, they rack up their credit cards, going out to Chili's too often, buying furniture at Sam's Fine Furniture or whatever they do. And, um, and in the end, they've got so much debt, they don't have any options and they feel a lot of pressure. So, you know, I think especially now, it's just best to live cheap, keep your options open and, and, and don't create a, a, a mountain of debt mm -hmm. you have to find. Um, so that's important. I mean, I, I could go on. I gave a lot of advice to people in this, in this upcoming uh, <laughs> Insights article that's going to come out. Pick the right mate. That may not seem like it's a business topic, but believe me, it is. Yeah. Uh, get a, getting divorced is very expensive. And if you have somebody who doesn't really support your career or, or your career goals, um, you know, it's not going to end well. And, and so, and I think a lot of young people don't really know what they want in, in a mate at, uh, you know, you just don't necessarily have the best judgment. That's certainly me. Yeah. And I think that's important with, for a variety of things too, just being intentional in the relationships that you build, whether it's in your job and career or in your personal life as well. And a lot of times those two kind of mix together. They do. They really do. I mean, as somebody who started multiple businesses, you know, you got to do a lot of things. You got to sign up for a lot of debt. Um, you, you know, you, in many cases, you got to take that time that we were talking about where you have to work and it's not eight to five, it's all kinds of hours. And if your spouse doesn't support that, man, it's going to be hell at home. Mm -hmm. And, and so, yeah, it took me a long time. I finally got a decent wife and uh, one that uh, shares my, my uh, value system and, and works well with me. But we worked together for years before we ever got married. So we knew what we were getting involved with, I think. Right. <laughs> yeah, and especially in a time like this, you know, whether we're entering into a recession or even worse, a depression, and you don't really know what's coming next, having that support system and having someone and you know people that you can rely on as you go through is really important it really is i it, no question about it so you know and i think it, 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 as you mentioned relationships intentional about your relationships that's another thing i think if you really look at what people need to be doing now if it's going to be a tough job market if companies in many industries are hammered and things get ugly out there I think it, those relationships are super critical, um, you know, with your mentors, with people that you've worked for before, with your friends, with your family members, um, because that network could be really, really crucial to you. Right. And, you know, I look at my career. I, I can tell you, 
I am still friends today with some of the first clients I got at age 22. And I'm 62, 40 years later. Can you believe that? That's impressive. Uh, You know, one of them, his granddaughter worked for one of our businesses while she went to school here, which is pretty cool. And, you know, I just talked to him like three or four weeks ago. Hmm. Um, So, yeah, those those long-term relationships with people, they're, they're so important. And if you just show interest in people, um, most of the time, they'll, they'll think you're great and uh, they'll show interest in you, you know? Yeah. Especially now since, you know, social distancing and things like that, it almost yep. could appear like we're being cut off from the rest of the world. But using, you know, digital forms of communication, other ways to communicate with people, everyone's looking for that right now. So it's, it's as good a time as any to be intentional yeah. building those relationships. I, I think you're going to see a renaissance of the telephone. People will actually call people. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, people in your generation, I think a lot of them just, they never want to talk to anybody on their phone. They only text. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's, there's a very interesting generational difference there. I'm, look, I'm guilty of it myself. I mean, I, I do it all the time. It's like, I don't want to have a long conversation with you. Right. I just want to batch with this very quickly. But that's not always in the best interest of your relationships, you know? Exactly. There's a time and place for both. Right, exactly. So as we enter into this time of uncertainty and, um, you know, a lot of negative news, I know if you look yeah. on news sites and everything now, there's not much positive. So I was wondering if you have seen anything as you've gone through this as far as silver linings to come out of COVID-19 and the pandemic uh, that we may not be considering. Oh, absolutely. There's all kinds of benefits that are going to come out of this. Um, maybe people are learning to slow down a little bit and realize what's really important in their lives. Mm-hmm. And it's not just endless material acquisition. You know, and I say that as a guy who's owned, you know, $20 million worth of real estate at one time and 20 vehicles. And, you know, I mean, I could go on and I've had a lot of stuff and it just doesn't make you happy. You know, the having this time to to spend in your home, spending more time with your spouse, spending more time with your children. uh, That's a huge benefit. Maybe people are actually doing things like reading that they haven't done in a long time. I mean, so yeah, it could be life altering for people and maybe we'll sort of reassess what our real priorities in life are. Maybe we'll come up with some better ones as a result of going through this experience. Certainly going to knock a lot of us down a few rungs on the economic ladder. I can tell you that. (laughs) We're all many of us will be affected, I think. Now, Netflix is doing great. I saw they got 15 million new subscribers in a week. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, again, look at the industry. Um, People are stuck at home. So I think a lot of positive changes. People are eating better. They're not going out to restaurants and getting those fries and blooming onions and (laughs) all the other stuff that's horrible for you and crazy portions. They're learning how to cook at home. They're probably eating healthier, losing weight. They may be exercising more, getting out, doing things with their kids, or just wanting to get out of the house and do something physical. 
you know, because they're stuck in the house. So maybe we'll get healthier mentally and physically as a result of this thing. And, yeah. you know, I, I think the other thing is, I mean, if you really look at it on a macro scale, I mean, it, 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 was it really sustainable, the path we're on? Do we really need the number of restaurants that we have? Do we really need, you know, and I'm a car guy, but I mean, there's, do we really need like 500 different car models to pick from? There's too much of everything. And it's, it's needless differentiation and complication and distraction. And the economics of what period we're going to go into, I think, is, is going to result in a lot less variation, perhaps, in some of the product and service categories that we've gotten accustomed to. And it's not going to be a bad thing. Again, you know, maybe some of those resources will be devoted to doing something better and more meaningful. Yeah. I think that'll be really interesting to see how industries adapt and change what they offer um, to reflect that changing environment. So I know yeah. you you interact a lot with real estate, I'm sure, since you uh, work with architecture and things like that. I know in 2008, you know, the last memorable like recession that we had, it was mainly due to like the housing market collapse and things like that. There were a lot of uh, problems there. Do you see Obviously, this is a very different cause of economic collapse if we have it. Um, do you see anything with real estate or the housing market, how that's been affected from this? Man, I, I, there's so far, you know, here locally, it has not had a huge impact yet. Um, honestly, I'm surprised that most of the real estate, I was talking with one of my friends, owns a local real estate company last night. And he said his sales are actually up right now. Interesting. Uh, but uh, do I think that's going to continue? No. I mean, if we have 30% unemployment, you're going to see lots of people can't afford their homes and they're going to go back. They're highly leveraged. Now, I, you know, look at it. I mean, something like 60% of our population cannot afford an emergency $400 expense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we will have, yes, we will have a problem. I, you know, again, I mean, you know, my experience in, in real estate, I've been involved in pretty much all facets of it. And, you know, always what holds its value best? Single family homes, walk to everything location. Always the best investment. You know, um, next, you know, Next to that, maybe it's downtown apartments and, and, and condos. And then, you know, the worst is suburban condos. As a guy that owns retail and restaurant space, I've got an empty restaurant right now. You know, sure, I'm concerned about that. I mean, who's going to rent that from me? You know, there are, think about it. And I've, fortunately, it's got a takeout, drive-up, uh, uh, you know, window. Mm-hmm. Which does make it a lot, you know, improves the utility of it. Maybe we can lease it to somebody. But I think you're going to see lots of problems uh, of all types and across the real estate spectrum. Uh, it's it, it's got to happen. If if money's not out there, people that own apartments, they're not going to be getting paid their rent. I mean, you know, it's everybody's like, oh, the landlord's great. They're they're letting us off the hook for for a month or two months or whatever. All landlords should do that, but who makes the payments? Mm-hmm. You know, if I've got forty thousand dollars in payments on my apartments to make a month, there's only so long I can 
I can do that, you know? Right. Yeah. And that's the thing. Landlords are people too. Yeah. Uh, They have to make their payments too for a variety of different things. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice of them to be adaptable and, you know, say, okay, we'll give you a couple months here of leeway, but I mean, if money doesn't start coming in eventually something, it's not going to be good. No. So, I mean, do I think we'll have a problem again? Absolutely. I, I think it's inevitable. Um, now, as a real estate investor, I'll, I'll be honest with you, some of the most profitable projects we ever did were properties we bought after the 2009 recession from banks. Sure. If you preserve your cash and credit and you're left standing when everybody else isn't, um, you may be able to get some good good bargains. But uh, no, I think it's inevitable we're going to have, I mean, especially if you look at places like New York City, you know, hot spots. I mean, here in NWA, we're going to be better off than most. I mean, we've got some companies like Walmart, Tyson, J.B. Hunt, all the transportation, logistics outfits. I mean, Procter & Gamble, you know, the University of Arkansas. We're, we will be better off than most because those are things people are going to need. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, New York City, you know, yeah, my brother's got a $4 million, 1,000-square-foot apartment. I mean, come on. <laughs> only so many people are going to be able to buy those or want those. Right. Those could drop from $4 million to $2 million overnight. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where they're already so inflated. Right. And people are packed in. Yeah, and that's going to be interesting to see if people end up moving out of cities Or, you know, away from those packed urban environments, one for paranoia about, you know, social distancing and things like that. But also, do they really want to pay the cost for something that's convenient to things that are no longer open? Well, that'll be interesting. Yep. So I know since you're an entrepreneur yourself, um, I've seen a lot of talk about, you know, companies that have come out of the 2008, 2009 recession, such as you know, Airbnb, Uber, uh, all of these companies started when it was a recessionary time, when it was a bad time economically. So do you have any advice to entrepreneurs that may be considering you know, either starting a business or maybe they have started for a year or so and are hitting this rough patch? What are you, what's your advice to them? Uh, that's a tough question again. I mean, I think my advice is usually the same to everybody, and that is how can low can you drive your expenses and how quickly can you start generating some revenue? Mm-hmm. You know, the the I'm a big advocate of bootstrapping. I've never been a huge fan of uh, outside investor equity uh, early on in a business. It's It's just not... It's the way to end up working for somebody else and not fulfill your vision for the for the business. Sure. So, you know, if you look at what businesses are the easiest to start, the lowest cost um, service businesses, they're usually the, the fastest and cheapest businesses that you can get going. And so I'd be looking at whatever I can do um, that's going to generate revenue quickly and have the lowest possible initial cost. Uh, if that makes sense. Um, sure. Because I, I think there's a lot of opportunities out there. I mean, it's some of some of them are doing things that are rather mundane. But, you know, if you just think about it, if people are stuck in their homes 
they're probably going to be a lot more interested in getting their windows washed mm -hmm. than they were. You know, I mean, I'm sitting here, you know, I live in a nice neighborhood. The average house price is over 900000 I've watched three of my neighbors put new roofs on in the last four weeks. Wow. I don't know what that's about, but I guess <laughs> they're sitting there, they're all in their homes and they're all thinking, oh man, we better make sure we take good care of our house now, you know? Yeah. So it, it's it's very interesting. Um, that's that's always been my approach. Let's generate revenue quickly. Let's test the concept, make sure the market likes it, and and let's do it at the least possible investment. And then the other thing I advice I give to people, I think if you look at a lot of businesses in a time like this, when times start getting tough, they start cutting back on their marketing, which mm -hmm. is the exact opposite of what you need to do. You need to increase your marketing expenses and activities in order to get more of a declining market. And, and it's, it's not what most people do. It makes sense when I tell people that, but it's not what they do. Usually they start cutting out everything they can. And marketing and advertising expenses are one of the first things that go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of times uh, common sense or something that makes sense when you tell someone, it can be kind of a conflict of interest. They're like, yeah, I don't really want to keep spending more money on something when yeah. everything else is declining. It just doesn't quite... It doesn't it, quite it, make sense, but it's like gas on a fire, though. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you got to throw the gas on the fire, or if you starve it for fuel, it's gonna it'll burn out. Mm -hmm. but, um, so yeah, I think you know there are certainly opportunities. People can scratch a living out, but God knows if we have thirty percent unemployment, it's going to be tough. Sure. You know, it might be a great business, a great time to get into a business that employs temporary workers, though. Mm -hmm. You know. There'll be a lot of them out there and a lot of companies that don't want to be hiring full-time employees. Right. I mean, all these things create opportunities in one way or another, even if it doesn't seem like it at the time. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously this change drives innovation. And I, I really like one of the pieces you wrote in Walton Insights about um, survival of a business. So, you know, you can't enjoy success and satisfaction when things turn around if you don't survive. Like, you have to still be in business. I love that line that you wrote in there. Because, you know, if, if you can't survive a recession or a hard economic time, you can't profit from it. Like you said, uh, you did in 2009. Yep. On the other side. That's right. And so, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I'll be, you know, none of the other recessions really affected me. Mm -hmm. um, in any negative way. I mean, our businesses, we did well, both in the real estate business and in the consulting and publishing and, and media business in all recessions that we've had. And I, you know, I started in 88, my business. We had one in, in 89 or 90. We had the savings and loan collapse and all that. That was a tough time. Um, you know, and then we had 9-11. That was a tough time. Things really slowed down then. And then we had the 2008-2009 recession. And now we got this deal here. You know, I think the important thing is, you know, again, selling something that somebody actually wants or needs. We were always very differentiated. My, my approach in business has always been I sell something that nobody else has. You know, you look at, for example, speculative home builders here. Well, they're all building the same product. It's a pseudo craftsman -y 
you know, now it's painted white brick with black windows and tapered columns on it and giant garages stuffed out front. It's just the same product. Mm-hmm. And so what happens when the market turns, now we got a zillion of these $600,000 houses. Those are going to be hard and they all look the same. Those are going to be hard to sell. Yep. The last time around, they were hard to sell. We were selling stuff in town at three times the price per square foot. You know, I was getting two six hundred thousand for two thousand square foot houses, and people say, "Well, how can you do that?" I go, "Because it's got it's different. Mm-hmm. It's got quality that people want. It's super energy efficient. It's not ostentatious. It's got a great location, and it's designed in such a way that it's timeless. It's never going to go out of style." Right. And that's one of the things, especially with houses, like if you're driving through a neighborhood and you see, for lack of a better term, like the cookie cutter houses that, yeah, I mean, it's something that traditionally or currently it's something a lot of people seem to want. Um, But then, you know, like you said, if there's a huge supply of them, it's going to be kind of hard to sell them. And so something that's differentiated with character, with the things people actually need or want, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, it's um, and you got to look at any in any market. You got to say who's got the money mm-hmm. right now. You know, my buyers. If you go back to two thousand nine, um, you know who were they? They were people who were retiring, uh, moving back to Fayetteville. They had their own businesses, and they were very successful. They had a lot of cash, um, highly educated, wanting to relive their youth, and. Um, either buying a primary or secondary home, you know, it was a great audience to serve. I mean, you know, I'll never forget. I sold the house to one guy. He had $7 million in cash. He bought a house for me for 555000 And he said, you know, if he doesn't blow it, he's going to live off his $7 million that he got when he took early retirement from a big corporation for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Perfect buyer wasn't affected by appraisal, didn't have to get financing, you know. Yeah, I mean, once again, if he had $7 million in cash, he could have gone out and spent the majority of that on something else. But like you said earlier, cutting back, uh, buying things you need, being financially smart, yes. uh, knowing that there are going to be things that come up, but if you have a way, obviously not everyone has $7 million, but if right. you have the savings and you start doing that now, you'll be better off in the long run than many Americans. That's it. I mean, if you look at like the residential market, what do you think the first things that are going to fall will be? I'll tell you right now, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, it will be houses on the west side of town. There are new couple, married couples, dual income. A lot of them are rented out. Uh, if the tenants can't pay, they're going to have problems. If the dual income families where they spent everything they could to get the biggest house they could afford, one of them loses their job, they can't afford it. So those are the things that go. Then East Fayetteville, the six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollar houses, they'll take a hit too. Who are the people that own those? Well, a lot of them are people that work for large corporations. And if they don't, if they're, again, if they're unemployed or maybe one of the spouses is unemployed, um, they can't afford to live there anymore. 
So I think, you know, you will see some of that. On the other hand, people are going to need basic housing. Maybe now would be a great time to build a 350 square foot one bedroom apartment complex with no parking. Uh, so you can keep your unit costs down as low as possible and rent those for 500 bucks a month. I mean, you may find that's a fantastic market to serve in a down market. Sure. You know, you just can't do the same thing everybody else does and put more of a product out there of whatever it is or service that nobody wants. I always cringed when the 38th Mexican restaurant opened in town, <laughs> you know, I mean, all serving essentially the same product. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, then somebody opens up one on the square that's, that's much more esoteric and the prices are two to three times as high and you can't even get in. It's genius. Yep. You know, really yeah. is. Especially now times are changing. So everyone has to change and yeah. no matter what industry, whatever you do. Um, I think that's a, that's a big takeaway from this is being innovative, looking for what people need and not being afraid to change, right? Some people, the sunk cost fallacy, like, oh, I've already, I've done it this way for so long. I got to keep doing it. But really, if, if <laughs> we've been doing, we've been doing well economically for a long time, but then that shifted really fast. So exactly, the only constant is change. So you have to be adaptable. I'm, I'm telling you, I think you're going to have to be more adaptable than ever right now. But if you can adapt, I mean, I sit there and I look at guys like Rolf Wilkin and Zurika Pizza. And, you know, he could have freaked out like everybody else. But instead, he, he, his social media marketing went up about 6,000%. I, wow. I said to him, you know, Rolf, you just, you're really hawking your pizzas like, like mad. But they're doing okay. You know, but they're looking at every aspect of it. How can we make people feel better? How can we make it easier? How can we make them feel safer? You know, buying right. the product. And the net result is he's probably going to be fine. You know, I would, I would, and he's also working himself, getting out there in the trenches, delivering pizzas, making pizzas. I mean, you know, he's got a lot of restaurants. He, he's, he's a, He's a relatively large business. I'm sure it's over eight figures in revenue annually. Sure. And, you know, and yet he's still out there hustling, working it. And that's admire. important. Yeah, it really is. And it makes the other people who work there feel like, well, hell, if he can do it, I can do it, you know? Exactly. Yeah, not being afraid to really commit and not ever being too proud or whatever it is to say, oh, I I don't have time to do this or I can't do this. This isn't what my position is, but really doing yeah. whatever's best for the business, best for you. Um, exactly. Surviving. That that's the point, man, right there. All right. So well, yeah, it's been good talking with you, Ryan. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, this was a great way to wrap up our season on health. I know it kind of transitioned a little bit from where we started in January from actual health to more COVID-19, but hey, got to be adaptable, right? Absolutely. Well, it's, it's uh, I don't think any of us predicted we'd be in this position in January. Oh, that's for sure. <laughs> but got to make do with what we have. So thank you so much again for talking with me, and I hope you uh, have a good rest of your day. And Good rest of your year. Stay adaptable.
Hey everyone, it's Ryan Decker, and I wanted to thank you for listening to Walton Biz Talk. That concludes our season on health, and we'll be back in the fall with a new season of Walton Biz Talk, so stay tuned. We started off this season with an exploration of topics such as health communication, global health care, and the medical humanities, as well as inclusion and equity in health, and even nursing. We had great discussions with students and faculty about their experiences in health and issues facing the world today. If you remember, we even briefly discussed COVID-19 in our first episode, not knowing it would have the effect that it did. I had no idea at the beginning of the season that we would spend so much time talking about the effects of COVID-19, but we shifted the season to adapt and respond to the changing environment. We spent the last half of the season discussing how COVID-19 has impacted business as a whole, looking at its effects on supply chains, the economy, small business, and real estate. I wish I could say I think these impacts are not long-lasting, but I believe we are in store for many more changes for the rest of the year. And that has been a driving force when determining the topic for next season. The pandemic has caused major change for many, many people, and we'd like to highlight how we're adapting to these changes. So join us in the fall for stories of perseverance, adaptability, and success amid a global crisis. We will explore topics such as the changing job market, essential and non-essential jobs and employees, financial literacy, and what you can do during times of uncertainty. Hear from students and professionals alike about their experiences and how they persevered during this tough time. As always, you can count on casual conversations about professional things. Thanks for listening.